scary. I mean, that first jump from what you've been trained to do to something new is a scary jump. Hello, and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Laura Gottlieb. Dr. Gottlieb is a professor of family and community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research explores healthcare sector programs and policies related to identifying and addressing social risk factors in the context of healthcare delivery. Dr. Laura Gottlieb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. Now, before we talk about your area of expertise, the social determinants of health, that is the conditions in the environment where people are born and live, and how that affects our health and well-being as individuals and as populations, I'd be really interested to know a little bit more about how you found your way into medicine and how this shaped where you've ended up. Yeah, it's a great question. It's always fun to look back. I do think it shaped where I ended up. I never actually pictured myself as a healthcare professional when I was a kid. You know, you have all those friends or stories from friends who, um, oh, from the time I was knee high to a grasshopper, I wanted to be a doctor. And I was not that. (laughs) I actually, I studied uh, Hispanic studies and comparative religions. And I was really into revolutionary movements uh, when I was in high school and then in college. And I anticipated that I would be a lawyer working with new immigrant populations. And then I had an opportunity to work at Cambridge Hospital in Massachusetts, where they were doing some really cool work related to anonymous HIV testing back in the day. This was in the early 90s. And I just loved the opportunity to connect with people at really vulnerable points in their life. And the healthcare encounter was so special, was so unique in that way. And so I started to turn to medicine as an option, which of course then necessitated a lot of backtracking and scrambling to do the coursework, all the kind of requisite courses that you have to do before med school. But that's how I ended up in healthcare, for better or for worse. From that experience, obviously, I know that you went on to practice family medicine. How do you think there was the difference between what your experience was like uh, before you started medicine and then the impact that you're able to have uh, when you were actually practicing? Oh, that's a good question, Dono. I I actually found medicine in the end frustrating. And the same things that drew me into the one-on-one clinical encounter actually then pulled me away (laughs) from clinical care, just feeling like I was my brain and my skills were actually drawn to the systems level interventions and less focused on the clinical interaction. I kind of felt like I was always hitting my head against a wall in the one-on-one clinical interaction because the things that had caused the illness or disease process were far upstream. And so Family medicine is actually very well suited to, uh, I think, my current career in that it really sits at the intersection of individual, family, and community. But we don't, as physicians or as clinicians, always think about the the community side of our role. But that that is ultimately what pulled me out of the clinical encounter specifically. Tell me about that experience of moving out of the clinical encounter, as you said, and moving into more, you know, research-based um, approaches. Yeah. So 
they're all connected in the end. <laughs> so I think one of the things that made me feel like I was hitting my head against the wall was just that the tools in my tool belt weren't the tools that I needed to best support the population that I was caring for. And what I wanted to do was arm clinical teams with better tools. And that's what I went off in search of. And it's a, it's a fun time, right? Because healthcare is at this moment, reimagining its own role in supporting patients and families and communities. And uh, we have an opportunity to think about what tools need to be in that tool box or tool belt for any individual professional. So yeah, I, I guess that's my answer is that they, it, it, it wasn't such a hard transition. It wasn't such a hard leap because what I felt like I was doing was empowering the people who were going to stay in the clinical sandbox. Moving from, from there into becoming the founder and co-director of Siren, what was it like in the early days when you were pulling all of that together? scary. I mean, that first jump from what you've been trained to do to something new is a scary jump. And I remember those conversations with family and friends and mentors about, I'm not happy in my current career, but will I, will I be happy if I pursue this other path? That was scary. And, you know, I had moments where I thought, maybe I'm an unhappy person. And that's where, you know, you need, <laughs> you need the people around you to say, no, 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 this seems situational. You, you, you will find your passion. But the jump is scary. And now actually that, I've that I did the jump and it was a successful jump and I'm, you know, happy that I did it. Now I'm looking for other things to jump into. But I do think you need to have that experience of, oh, I'm going to do something different, something that's outside the box, that's off the, the original path. You need to practice that. But anyway, so Siren came about because I, you know, as I was doing all this digging on social determinants of health, I really realized that we needed better translators. Like there was all this information about how social conditions shape health and health outcomes, and we weren't applying it yet in healthcare systems. We were applying it in lots of other places, but we weren't yet translating that research into what we were doing in healthcare. And that didn't make sense to me. And so I thought, gosh, I could be a translator. I don't have to be the best researcher. I don't have to be the best leader, but I could translate some of this research and say, oh, I know some about clinical. I know some about research and let me be the bridge. So that's where that came from. The, the other fun thing about that was, you know, I got to spend a year where I just basically talked with people who knew a lot more than I did. I've sometimes thought about it as like the English muffin of social care. Like there were people in nooks and crannies from lots of different disciplines who were kind of tackling parts of social care, but no one had put all those nooks and crannies into one place. And I got to make the English muffin. I got to like put them all into one place and say, hey, okay, all of you are doing this translation process, but in, in, different, in your different disciplines and places, and let's put it all together and it'll be delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so can you elaborate a little bit more on, on what it means to be in this role as, as a translator, um, I know that you're also doing research as well as um, communicating research. So what does that mean if you could kind of unpack what that role looks like? You know, the people in research use a language and methods that helps to uh, unpack a thorny problem. 
And the people in clinical spaces sometimes need that boiled down to what do I do? What's the one, two, and three? And the healthcare system leaders need that boiled down into a what do I do? And it's those one, two, and three that the healthcare system leaders and the funders and the people in the on the ground need. Sometimes those one, two, threes are not exactly the same, <laughs> but they're certainly not the same as the all the nuance that is in some of our in some of the research questions that we're asking. And so I think what we're trying to figure out how to do, not always super successfully, but is to say, okay, this is this. These are the really important questions that the people on the ground or in whatever operations role need answered. And let's make sure that our research, the research that we're doing actually answers those questions because there's a, you know, it's a two-way street. It's one, sometimes the research could matter, but we haven't translated it effectively into the kernels that people need in operations role. And sometimes it's the operations people have to tell the researchers, here are the research questions, design the study around that. So that's what I mean by translation. There are formal definitions of translation. NIH has, you know, their whole translational research goal. But I think on, you know, basic terms, it just means making sure that you're sharing the evidence back. And then also, I think, shaping the research questions based on what the needs of stakeholders are. With the social determinants of health being so front of mind, I guess, at this current moment, but you've been obviously in the space for, for a while now, how has our thinking of the social determinants of health changed or, or evolved? That question is complicated. It requires my remembering what I used to think, <laughs> and it requires being aware of what I currently think. So... There have been a lot of things about my work that have evolved and my thinking that have evolved in this space. One of the things that has changed is that, or maybe it's that I, it's not that it's changed. I always saw nuance. I always saw that this was not a, an easy path. The healthcare kind of recognizing that it has a role to play in in shaping and address, identifying and addressing um, social conditions. I never thought that that would be black and white, that that would just be like, oh, you hand a person a piece of paper and voila. But I think as you become steeped in any field, you see all the complexities of it. Um, you see the complexities of holding health systems responsible for social conditions, you can see the payment problems that arise. You can see the the flags that will come up from community-based organizations. You can see, I have a um, deeper understanding of the black holes of clinical informatics and like what, like how deep and complicated that is, including the coding world, the EHR world, the implementation of different documentation approaches. There's just like a whole richness on each of the topics that we've started to tackle in this field that I wouldn't have been able to name before. I, and you can hear me now, I'm like still struggling to name them. Uh, everything has just gotten deeper and that's, I think that's what you hope, but you know, that's what expertise means. But I don't think I realized 
you know, I thought I was just going to translate this cool research and give it to the clinical people and they would figure it out. And then I realized, oh my God, each piece of what I'm doing has so many different stakeholders and so much different complexity. I have to learn, I have to learn that. I have to, I have to learn a lot about all of those different pieces, not just about how social determinants, not just bring the social determinants work to, to those people. I wonder, are there things that you maybe would prioritize or areas that you think have the most, most impact that could, you know, progress some of these uh, missions forward? Good question. How do we establish priorities? And where would I put my money? It's a question that we grapple with all the time, I think, as leaders in this space. And I think if you asked five different people, they might all put their money down in a different place. And actually, what the other thing that's interesting in this particular space is that, surprisingly, there's been a big shift in the U.S. healthcare sector, and they actually... The, the system writ large has put its money down in some ways on social risk screening and standards setting that I might have said a few years ago, this would be super cool if we could prioritize this and put our money here. And now that it's happening, it's making me recognize, oh, wait, I don't know that I would that I think that this is the right path. And I can see problems with putting my money there on standardization that I hadn't seen before. So I'm gonna give you an example of the NCQA, the National Commission for Quality Assurance, and CMS, the Inpatient Quality Reporting Program, have both come out in the last year with quality measures related to social risk screening in clinical settings. And in fact, the NCQA HEDIS measures also include intervention or doing something about any risks that that are identified on the health plan side. So the HEDIS measures are for health plans, the IQR program, the CMS program is for uh, inpatient hospital programs. And I, I first would say, oh my gosh, this is what I wanted. (laughs) And then I would say, now that I'm looking at that, oh dear, like the differences in the ways that those, even those two programs, and there are others that have kind of come, are doing similar efforts to standardize what's happening in, around screening, particularly. The differences across those programs reveal to me that people have been trying to translate the evidence and they're translating it in different ways because the evidence isn't good enough yet for standardization. We don't know what patients really need and how, moreover, how healthcare systems can implement that in a way that is sustainable and feasible and most of all, meaningful for patients. So, I could tell you what I would prioritize and then I would inevitably be wrong or question my assumptions as soon as it happens. And I don't, you know, I think that that's like, I think that's a normal process where, okay, let's try that path. And then sometimes you maybe have to back off that path a little or you have to at least um, reassess and redirect and refine and that has been super fun for me. 
I mean, maybe because I'm because of this like unique role that an academic researcher plays, it's fun for me. Maybe it wouldn't be as much fun if I were in charge of the CMS program where we made the decision to invest in that. So yeah, I don't. I, that's kind of a non-answer, but I would say I have reluctance to actually put my money down in one space, other than. And this is why I wear the hat that I wear, <laughs> other than more rigorous research on the impact and potential negative impact of implementing this new integration work. I'm excited about it. I think it's worth testing, but I I don't know that I could say that one area is more important than another. Now, I know you've done some really interesting work around how the health sector can actually engage in social determinants of health-related activities through a particular framework called the five A's. I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about the five A's. I want to give credit where credit is due. So the five A's emerged from the National Academy of Medicine's report on integrating social care into healthcare delivery to improve the nation's health. That framework um, was based on, in part, on work that our team had done, just trying to provide a framework or at least a place where you could hang your hat, (laughs) you know, some kind of organizing uh, language, kind of a a common language for how we would understand the different kinds of interventions that are, or activities that are evolving, rapidly evolving in the healthcare sector around social conditions. And it's not perfect, but it's, I find it to be a helpful organizing frame for obvious reasons, for obvious reasons. There's just so much happening in the healthcare sector right now in this field. And it's, it's useful because it helps me create clusters of, to kind of group those different activities. So the uh, the committee, the National Academy Committee started by just saying, okay, well, what are all the activities related to identifying social adversity and identifying uh, resilience factors? Although most of the work around uh, understanding patient social conditions has really focused on a, a needs base or deficit frame. And the committee called that awareness activity. So anything that was related to identifying patients uh, or describing patient social conditions was kind of put into this category called awareness. And that includes very patient level screening activities and then also um, big kind of health system or payer level using neighborhood level information to uh, characterize patient social conditions or pulling in data from banks and from other sectors to superimpose and estimate patient social conditions. So like it wasn't all patient level screening, although much of the research in that area is focused on the patient level screening for social adversity. Then the other four categories uh, in the National Academies framework have to do with interventions. And two of those are very patient level interventions. And two of them are much more community level intervention strategies. So like once you have information about your patient social conditions, is there anything that the healthcare sector should be doing? And the patient level strategies, um, one is called adjustment. So it's like ways that you use information about patient social conditions to shape your clinical decision making. And this is where I kind of feel like 
we do this a lot in healthcare systems, but we don't do it systematically or strategically. We haven't built our clinical tools to help us do this every time. So for instance, if I knew about patients' uh, housing situation, I might make different decisions about which medications I were to give them. So I might say, oh, I shouldn't be prescribing a refrigerated medication to patients who don't have refrigerator or easy refrigerator access or who are living in their car. I might um, more routinely or systematically choose less expensive medications for patients who were struggling with financial insecurity. I might not give medications that had to be prescribed with food um, or taken with food. There are a lot of different decisions like that. And, And you could see it's not just like patient level decisions, but maybe I would design my health system so that I didn't... I didn't say that patients who were 15 minutes late couldn't be seen that day because I know that they're struggling with transportation issues or getting to a clinic appointment at a particular time is really, really difficult because of their other competing demands. And I would have an open schedule process or there are just like so many different systems levels decisions in that as well. That's adjustment. And then there's a more obvious A, which is about assistance and connecting patients with social resources. Um, and then there are these community level factors and I or community level categories, uh, which are much more about the healthcare sector's role as a as an ally and as a an anchor institution and the the roles that we might take to improve community level social conditions. But you can see that there's it, that these are just big categories that enco- each one of which encompasses a lot of individual very different approaches to engaging around social factors. Now, I wanted to pick up on something you just mentioned called an anchor institution. Um, Could you tell me a bit more about what they are and how they work? Good question. I am actually not the world's expert on anchor institutions. There are a lot of people who know a ton about this, including folks from the Healthcare Anchor Network. But we've done a little bit of work. My colleague, Caroline uh, Fichtenberg, Uh, And former Commonwealth Health Policy Fellow Matilda Allen actually have done a lot more uh, thinking about this than I have. But essentially, an anchor institution is an institution whose activities are really very much rooted in the community in which it sits. So... Schools, healthcare institutions, oftentimes it's at the school level, it's an, a university, but a university where that maybe is the biggest employer. They do the most construction. The money that is associated with that organization is fundamentally tied to the success and development of the surrounding community. And certainly here at UCSF, the University of California, San Francisco, um, is considered an anchor institution because we are the biggest employer. We do the most purchasing. We do tons of construction. And that means that San Francisco's economy and community development and opportunity is very much tied to the policies of the university. So that's, you know, lots and lots of healthcare organizations and academic healthcare organizations are considered anchor institutions, but certainly not exclusive to healthcare. You know, whether or not you can say that UCSF is an example of a successful anchor institution, I mean, it's across the spectrum. Like we do great in some things and we probably don't do great in other things, but the Healthcare Anchor Network is a group that has um, published a, a fair amount online about 
well, what does it mean to sign on to be an anchor institution that is actually supporting, really focused on supporting policies that will be um, po- make a positive impact on community development? How much local hiring do you do? How much do you put, you know, how much emphasis do you put on a living wage? Where are you investing? Are you investing in local businesses or are you, you know, doing uh, investments that are far afield from your community? So there are all sorts of different policies and practices that make for an anchor institution's impact to be more pro-development. I'm really glad we got to talk about the concept of anchor institutions because for me it is connected to the bigger idea of the social contract that is the trust and relationships that we have between ourselves and institutions and there is often a implicit agreement uh, that we will be treated fairly and we often have explicit agreements you know laws and policies that also try to ensure that we're treated fairly um, but these are built on on trust on goodwill uh, on the taxes we all contribute to so I feel like that anchor institution is a is a reflection if done really well of the social contract being appropriately upheld I like that. I like that uh, framing of it being the social contract. I think what we often forget when we think about healthcare roles and responsibilities around social determinants broadly writ is that we think of healthcare institutions as just healthcare institutions, but our ally, friend, colleague, Doug Judy, formerly of the Build Healthy Places Network, is just constantly reminding us like, oh, actually, healthcare institutions are just big businesses that happen to do healthcare. So this idea that there are a whole um, array of other activities that we do besides healthcare that actually have an enormous impact on our local communities is kind of the foundation of what the healthcare anchor institution idea is all about. We do a lot of other things, and all of those other things actually could be pro-community or actually really undermine the strength and equity in our communities. So, yeah, it's a social contract, and it's a social contract that involves a lot more than healthcare. I think this also highlights a really interesting opportunity uh, that institutions can better connect with their staff around what their real purpose is and how they actually express their values. You know, so many people in healthcare are, are moving around, are leaving healthcare altogether. And I think that if they don't feel their institution is actually living up to their values, they're going elsewhere. So I wanted to shift gears now and touch on a bit of a tension. That tension is between healthcare and social services. And often there is a line that's a bit blurred between the two. But I wanted to ask the question, Perhaps we are overburdening healthcare providers with fulfilling social needs. Yeah, this is the eternal question that we struggle with. What is the right role and what is the responsibility of our healthcare institutions around identifying and addressing social needs? And I I actually am not an advocate for healthcare stepping in to provide um, all social services. I, I feel like we have a, what healthcare can do is be an enormous ally and supporter and advocate for the essential social services, but they don't need to provide those services in all cases for all people. That's what our other 
sectors are for. Like there are people who are better suited to providing housing and providing food and ensuring um, that people have more financial stability. What we have experienced in the United States, and I think is true in many other countries, is that we have not, but it's just more acute here, is that we have overfunded healthcare and underfunded the social services. And the result is that we're being held accountable for health without the foundation of a strong social safety net that is required to achieve health. So healthcare needs to say, hey, we can't just overfund healthcare. And the problem, of course, is that when you get the money, it's really hard to let go of the money. <laughs> it's like, you know, um, we're really good at holding on to money in the healthcare system. So in contrast to saying, oh, healthcare should now own all of that social service, I think really ultimately what we want to see is all the different sectors uh, recognize what the end goal is and divide up the money according to how we together achieve that goal. Some people at this point talk about, well, yeah, this would be like the medicalization of social needs. And I know medicalization is something that uh, has been on your mind over the last few months. I think the yeah, that it's kind of the opposite of what we're really hoping. We're in the work that we do at Siren. It's not that healthcare will come to be the be-all and end-all, the one-stop shop for all all services. It's rather to say it is Im- impossible to achieve population health without recognizing the underlying social determinants of health, and healthcare can be an incredibly strong ally for reinvesting money in fundamental social services. Yeah, I'll just emphasize that point you made, that healthcare is such a powerful partner, that we don't have to live in a zero-sum world. Now, for some people, they might think, oh, you know, this is a pipe dream, you're looking for utopia. But uh, if you aren't sort of aspiring for more, we are really just uh, ingraining the status quo, the, the current problems that we have well, you just want to accept them. So uh, I think that's a really powerful piece. And I think really good leadership uh, goes beyond the four walls of your healthcare institution. It's also got me reflecting on the moral injury that frontline staff have been feeling, that when uh, social safety nets are not adequate, uh, people people feel this, they see it, uh, and it contributes to burnout and, and people leaving the professions. Now, I'd like to now move to policy. Um, are there any interesting policies in the social determinants of health space that are of particular interest to you in the U.S.? Yeah. Oh, I, my mind is racing with all of the things that you just raised. So, but I'm gonna re, I'm gonna shift. <laughs> I'm gonna go to the question that you asked. Um, but it. But you you raise like the concepts of um, of moral injury are so interesting. It really depends on how people see their roles and responsibilities. Um, okay, but I'm shifting. So there's there's a lot happening on the policy front. There's a lot happening both at the state level and at the federal level around healthcare, social care responsibilities. And we've written a little bit about this and had some events to highlight some of the exciting and scary uh, policies, I think, that are trying to standardize social care um, as a kind of fundamental core component of healthcare delivery. So the most notable recent sea change that we've seen in healthcare 
is that new require, well, I shouldn't say requirements, new quality measures associated with social risk screening and in some cases interventions. The other exciting thing that's happening at the policy level in this space is that, you know, over half of the states in the United States have Medicaid agencies that have instituted some form of requirement around social risk screening or some kind of innovation around asking health plans to do more differently in this space. And so, um, you know, I come from the great state of California, where, as you know, our most recent Medicaid waiver um, under Medi-Cal has an extraordinary amount of innovative content specifically focused around addressing the social conditions that Medicaid members experience and really investing in the infrastructure and supports for social services using healthcare dollars. And again, we've seen that we're seeing that in lots of different states. I happen to know about the Cal AIM waiver, um, but we don't know, you know, what's going to work about that. What's not going to work about that? It's not for everybody who has Medicaid coverage. It's really focused on people who are experiencing specific social needs or m- most vulnerable. Um, so, will we? Will it have the impact that we that we anticipate? Unclear. You mentioned screening programs. And my understanding is that a great screening program is one where you have the ability to to take an action to mitigate what you've found during the screening process. So what are health systems investing in so that they can actually solve what they've identified through screening? Yeah, so everybody's doing this in a different way. Um, and it depends on requirements. It depends on resources. So some places are investing in community health workers. Some places are investing in patient navigators. Some places are investing in um, technology that helps to make information about available community resources more accessible at the point of care. Some people are, like in Calame, actually using healthcare dollars to invest in social services programs. Um, So it just comes in all sorts of flavors. And again, I think it's reflective of the fact that uh, researchers have been way behind innovators in this area. So we're racing to catch up. All the researchers are racing to catch up and really help establish what are the best ways to respond to to needs that are identified in the healthcare space. Should healthcare be providing them? Some groups are providing food boxes as patients transition out of the hospital, but then with the hope that then people will be better connected to services outside the hospital after some number of weeks for instance, where they get food boxes that are paid for by healthcare, but then maybe three months later, they won't need those food boxes from healthcare. Those will be provided by other community supports. Yeah. So like, what's the length of time that healthcare should be involved? How long do people need navigation services? Will, yeah, there are just, there are so many interesting questions there that need to be unpacked. Now, none of these programs work if you don't have the trust of the patients, families, and communities that you're working in. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about how perhaps you've seen some institutions build and maintain and and grow trust. This is a good and difficult question. Um, I don't think it's any surprise that relationships are the really depend on long term showing up and partnership. So I think I can think of a lot of examples where healthcare systems can cite failures, <laughs> like where they showed up and instead of being an ally, they tried to be the lead, or where 
They didn't consult with community groups before they purchased something, but instead afterwards and tried to then go back and redesign something that was not built with the needs of community agencies, where boards that were stood up were for show rather than for long-term partnership and solidarity, or really just where the interests of the healthcare system and the interests of the community didn't align. I think there are a lot of places that are also doing it right. We see lots of community health centers all over the United States that are really investing in partnerships, long-term, deeply seated community partnerships that where the you know the focus is the health of the community rather than whatever any organization's economic survival. And it's not that I think economic, you know, um, wherewithal or sustainability is not an important component of any organization's strategic vision. It's just that I think our health system incentives are, are, are not consistently built around population health. And so sometimes those two things are at odds. What would you say to other healthcare professionals and clinicians who are looking to you know, better engage with the social determinants of health for their patients? Well, there's so many parts of the system where you can act. Like, do you control money? Do you control individual clinic visits? Like, what is, what is your role? And you push on the lever that is the lever that makes sense for you. So I don't, I don't know if I can give a super succinct answer. I'm too, I'm too concrete. Uh, but I will say, you know, just as in my clinical role, I will follow up on your idea of there is something that is really, there, there's something broadly wrong with our healthcare system. And as an individual clinician operating in an individual encounter room um, with an individual patient, there's something tremendously meaningful about recognizing the situation that a patient is in, um, not sending them home with a plan for care that they could never adhere to, but actually having a conversation about what is attainable. So that's where you know shared decision making and really open, honest conversations about patient social conditions is really important because healthcare. Sh- Sure, I can say, oh, I'm going to connect them with social services, but that almost discounts a little bit the extent to which healthcare has been an accomplice or has exacerbated the health consequences of social adversity by just largely ignoring them even in the exam room. So I think as an individual clinician or as an independent clinician, I would say there's a lot you can do even in the absence of social services where we can really think about where the little decisions that we make in clinic actually have huge repercussions for individual patients. And then more systematically to think about, okay, not only you know can the healthcare system be transformed so that it is um, not exacerbating or make you know making worse the social uh, adversity that so many patients of our patients, so many of our patients come in with, but also where can we be an amazing ally and invest in the social services that will kind of fundamentally change health and well-being at a population level? 
Well, as we draw to a close, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, I just wanted to say a huge thank you for all of your time today and especially for the ongoing work that you're doing in this very important area. Thank you so much. Right back at you, Jana. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.